This is the word of God for us for this morning. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will make them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would, have, would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us? Or to everyone. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? <coughs> Excuse me. It'll be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. <coughs> Excuse me. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So reads God's word. Amen, and good morning. It's good to see you. I uh, just want to encourage you with some good and some sad news at the same time. This week I received a lovely email from someone that's been amongst us for the last four months or so, that they've become a Christian. There's no better news than that. 
The sad news is that they said, actually, they're going to be part of another church family in the locality, and they come back and see us from, from time to time. So it's much rejoicing that we can say someone has professed faith or had their heart renewed um, and loves the Lord Jesus more than they did four months ago, or they've become a Christian for the first time. That's the great news. The sad news, uh, for us at least, is that this person is going to be worshipping elsewhere. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at this passage of the Bible together. Father, we do thank you so much that the same power that has been evident when we open our eyes and look at the world that you've spoken to being, the same power that can put flesh onto bones in a valley of dry bones, the same power that rose the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave is at work in every single one of us that's a Christian here this morning. You are God of great power and we give you all the praise and all the renown for that. We pray for our friend who's been amongst us. We pray that you would continue to work in their lives, to grow them in godliness, to help them to commit to another local church family and to mature and to become a Christ prizer, as the old Puritans would say, that they would live focusing their lives on King Jesus, living under his rule and care, knowing his blessing and provision. But also they'd want to share this great news of the gospel with others as well. So please be with our friend. Please, what we pray for them, we pray for ourselves. And would your power be at work in us, in us as we listen to your voice, as you speak to us through your powerful word. Amen. A few years ago, I do remember a story that, uh, or a conversation of which I was a part. The conversation was between some friends of mine around a cup of coffee, as uh, it was often the case, and the conversation went like this, because they were talking about another friend of ours who had uh, sadly lost his wife, she died, and uh, he had remarried, uh, a, a younger lady who was also uh, sadly a divorcee. And the conversation went like this as we were describing uh, and discussing their marriage. Isn't it interesting, I'll make up some names, how Bob's uh, clothing has now changed since he's got married. It's as if someone's got control of his wardrobe as if for the first time. He's now dressing more youthfully. The old bland colours have gone out and new uh, resplendent kind of rainbow colours have been introduced. His hair, his hair looks different. I'm not talking about Joel and Margot, by the way. Um, his, uh, his hair is different. His, uh, his hair has not looked so youthful for many years. The uh, shades of grey have been banished. He's now kind of looking black-haired. And uh, he's lost a few pounds as well. He's undergone, shall we say, a transformation. So the discussion went. Lots of banter, lots of humour. And then he walked into the room and the conversation stopped. Um, <laughs> What's really interesting, the conversation ended something along the lines of somebody chipped in, a very mature person, so it must have been a woman, uh, saying, he's looking different, he's looking trim, he's looking dapper, but he's the same guy. Uh, we've been journeying through Luke, and there's been uh, all the difference in the world from that kind of funny description of this conversation I had a few years ago to what Jesus is talking about, about what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? They all mean the same thing. What it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian, is not someone who just looks different on the outside. What we've seen as we've gone through chapters 9, 10, 11, and into 12 is someone who has been encountered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's inside-out change. It's inside-out change. Someone who's become a Christian 
It's a new identity. It's a new status. It's being adopted into a new family. It's having a new heavenly father. It's inside-out change. It's also an upside-down change. So your status has changed. That's inside-out, upside-down. What you're living for is now completely different. Inside-out, upside-down. This morning, if you're still with me, if you're geographically challenged or spatially unaware, this is a problem for you. This morning, it's now forward-informed living. It's future change. It's the future realities changing us as Christian disciples and followers in the present. Inside out, upside down, but now forward informed change. And it's all about the kingdom of God. On the sheet in front of you, you've got the passage from Luke 12 that begins actually in verse 32 that we've looked at the last few weeks. And it's focusing on the kingdom of God. I just want us to think about the power of the kingdom of God to make this change, to change us to be more like Jesus, to change us from inside out. It's not, oh, but he's the same. This is complete transformation. This is a sledgehammer to our hearts. This is God's power in our midst, the same power that created the world, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It makes dead people living people. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I want us to think very briefly about the power of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? What is the power of the kingdom? Verse 32 of chapter 12. That's our first heading, the power of the kingdom. It's really interesting, and thousands of pages have been written on what the kingdom of God actually is. But it's interesting that in verse 32 of Luke 12, Jesus says these words, Fear not, little flock, speaking to his disciples, speaking to his followers. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then he says, one of the signs of you understanding what that means is that you give away all your stuff. You see money as just money, not as a status, not as something to give you life because you've already got life and so you can give away generously. But many people disagree on what the kingdom of God is. Some people see it as a power, some people see it as completely future, some people see it as completely present. And one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament on what the kingdom of God actually is, is not in Luke, I think it's in Matthew, Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus says these words, let me read it to you. This is what the kingdom of God is from Jesus' lips. At the renewal of all things in the future, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man sits On his glorious throne, those who have lost houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. From the lips of Jesus, it's future. Stay with me. Now, the Greeks, they were a funny brunch. The Greeks saw history as going on a downward spiral. Everything was subject to decay. The best was in the past. The future was grim. That was a Greek worldview. And Jesus, in that passage in Matthew 19, verse 28, he takes one Greek word and he turns it on its head and says history is not history repeating itself again and again. History is not on the decline, although sometimes it feels it, if you look at the newspaper or read it on the internet. Jesus says, there is a time coming in the future where I'm going to return to rule and to reign when my kingdom will come, not at the the denigration of things, not at the decay of things, things are going to be renewed, the future is bright, the kingdom will come, I will establish my rule and it will be a place of peace and prosperity and joy and blessing with the absence of tears. Everything is going to be remade, 
everything will be renewed. The cosmos will not decay, it will be renewed, it will be remade, it will be refashioned, and it will be perfect and joyous. It will be, I thought Martin did a great job with the kids, it will be like a party. It will be like a heavenly banquet. Everything bad you've ever experienced, you're going to see it in light of what it truly was purposed for. You will see the purpose and the plan of God in the future. You will understand all of history in the future. There is a day coming, says Jesus, when my authority and power and splendor and glory will be revealed. It's in the future. It's all in the future. But there are other passages in the Bible, such as verse 32 of chapter 12, that says, well, actually, it's in the present as well. Verse 32 of Luke 12, your father has been pleased, past tense, to give you the kingdom. It's all in the future. And then Jesus says it's in the present as well. And there are other passages, such as um, Luke 22. Jesus is celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he says, I'm not going to drink this wine with you again until we drink it in the kingdom of God. It's in the present. I thought Jesus said it was in the future. I thought it was all in the future, and now he's saying it's in the present. Jesus says, here is one of the paradoxes that we as Christians have got to wrestle with. We need to understand that the kingdom is in the future, and yet God's power is possible, and it's made known, and it's seen in a manifest form in the present as well. Now, some Christians disagree that they think more is in the present and more is in the future, and there is much to be disagreed upon. But one thing we can see clearly that the Bible says is that the kingdom is in the present and it's in the future. It's in the future and it's in the present tense as well. Jesus is saying this same power that one day is going to renew the whole world, that power is seen in the lives of individual people as they are changed from the inside out, from upside down, and the future is brought into the present as well. And you can see that in the rule and reign of King Jesus as he walked the earth. You can see it in the lives of people that are transformed through inside-out living. We will know it now, but it will be partial. We will know it then, and it will be complete and glorious. That's the hope of my friend that I saw at Prince Alice Hospice Trust on Tuesday as their bodies wasting away. She looks very different from the last time I saw her two months ago. But in her eyes, there is a security that only a Christian can know. In the future, she will know the glory of God, and that's the hope that burns in her eyes. That's the hope that she longs for her children. It's the future shaping the present. Do you know something of that in your life? Inside-out change, upside-down, and future shaping you in the present tense. God is coming into our lives to change us, not slightly, not just clothing on the outside, not just losing a few pounds, not dyeing our hair. This is complete radical transformation. It's the power of the kingdom of God. It's there in verse 32 and following. I want to focus this week, however, not on the power, but on the practices of the kingdom. What does the fact that the future changes the present, how is that seen? How does that change our lives? What does that look like in the life of a disciple? Three things. Firstly, really quickly, verse 32 of chapter 12, radical generosity. 
We've looked at this for two weeks. One of the signs that the future is shaping the present is that you see money as money. Let's move on. Number two, radical service across barriers. Radical generosity, the future shaping the present. Radical service across barriers will slow down. In this passage, there is a sad uh, train of events in verses 43, 44, and 45. We have a servant whose job it was to care for his fellow servants, to to minister to them, to feed them, to clothe them, to uh, nourish them. And rather than feeding them, he feeds himself. Rather than nourishing and caring for them, he beats them. He's brutal to them. He's unkind to them. He oppresses them. He abuses them. And then the master says, verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. The master, he, will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. That sentence, verse 37, this great kind of uh, another paradox between a servant who should be caring for people and then a master who comes and serves, that would have made no sense to the original listeners and readers of this sentence. I mean, that never happens. A master would never come and serve. Masters, they would receive the benefit of having servants. Servants would work hard and do their job and and wait at table, but a master would be reclined at the banqueting table enjoying fine wine, fine food, like Waitrose sort of stuff. Not Audi. Audi's pretty good, but it's not Waitrose. But listen, in that culture when there was uh, the kind of habit of fine dining, of, of servants waiting on masters, Jesus comes in and turns it on its head. In a culture where you would have fine kind of flowing clothes, clothes and, and when there was hard work to be done, if you were a master, you would tuck it into a kind of a belt and you would literally roll up your flowing sleeves. Jesus turns it on his head because he says the master is getting ready to work, not the servant. Do you see that? Servants, they're the ones that do the work. But now Jesus is saying, verse 37, the master will dress himself. He will dress himself to serve. Masters never do that. But here is Jesus turning the social barriers on their heads. A master dressing himself for service. When the master comes representing the coming king, Jesus says, this is what the master will do. He's going to come and take the servants. He's going to have the servants reclining at the table, the servants enjoying the food, the servants enjoying the finest of wines, and the master is going to guard himself. He's going to tuck his fine robes in his belt. He's going to roll up his sleeves, and he's going to feed them. Social barriers turn right on their heads. To quote Top Gun, it's inverted. This is so radical that we just miss it because we think, what's the big deal? This is shame. This is complete change. And Jesus is showing, this is how the future affects the present. You give generously. You smash social barriers. When this master comes, he turns expectations right on their head. He's the coming king. When you see how the future will be, it shapes the present, it transforms it. It transforms your values. It's not moral reformation, it's transformation. 
C.S. Lewis said this before. He tells the difference between moral uh, transformation, and, or rather moral reformation and transformation. He says it's like someone who buys a cottage. They go in and they start fixing a few things. But in comes King Jesus with a sledgehammer and he starts by doing all the wiring. He knocks down walls. He changes the roof. He builds out a new wing because he's not interested in the cottage. He's making a palace fit for a king to live in. And Jesus says one of the signs that the future shapes the present is that social barriers don't matter anymore. Now, we need to hear this in Epsom. We need to hear this in Epsom when there's all the difference in the world from someone who attended Epsom College to someone who attended Epsom Primary. We need to hear it in Epsom where there is a difference in the postcode that you live. We need to hear it in Epsom when we can divide Epsom by saying, uh, here's the downs and, and here's the rest. Here's one side of the railway and here's the other. Here's the club that I'm a member of and you're not a member of any. Jesus says one of the signs that the future shapes the present in Epsom in our lives will be that social barriers don't matter anymore. We all have barriers. We all have lines. And one of the signs that the future is shaping the present, that you've become a Christian, is how you deal with people the other side of the line, whatever that line is. So it's generosity, the future shaping the present. It's a service to people who are different from you. It's the, the future shaping the present. And then it's a radical awareness of joy and justice. That's the future shaping the present. Look at verse 37. There's going to be a feast. There's going to be banquet. There's going to be fine fare. There's going to be a master serving the servants. But then verse 46. That's a sentence we wish wasn't in our Bible. The master of that servant will come in on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. There's joy, there's incredible joy at this banquet, and yet there's, there's real justice. That's what that sentence is a picture of. There's joy at the banquet, and yet there's justice when the master returns. And how do we keep these two things together? Verse 35. Verse 35 says, there's joy and there's justice, and so Jesus says, keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. Now, what does that mean? It sounds a bit like scouts and kumbaya and that kind of stuff. What does Jesus mean by when he says, keep your lamps burning? Well, first thing, it must be nighttime. If you're going to keep a lamp on, it must be in the dark. But the second thing, I think it's an image from the lips of Jesus, and he's saying this. If you were going to keep your lamp burning, you would want to keep awake. It would be dark. It would be night. So physically, it's an image that we can grab hold of and say, if someone is keeping their light on, if someone is tending to the lamp, if someone is caring for that lamp because they don't want it to go out, it's because they're, they're waiting for something or someone, and it's dark and it's night, and they want the security to see who's coming and who's not. If it's friend or foe, if they're safe and secure, or if they're in danger, keep your lamp burning because you're waiting for someone or something. That, that's the kind of the earthy metaphor, but spiritually, Jesus is saying, keep your lamp burning because someone is returning. Physically, we can be aware that if we keep our lamp burning and then it goes out, we could fall asleep. We could be beholden to someone else. We could uh, fall asleep and then when you're physically asleep, you're, you're no longer 
really aware of physical realities, that things are going on outside of your consciousness, if you're just physically asleep. But if you're spiritually asleep, then you're not aware of the spiritual realities that are yet to be. And Jesus is saying, as a disciple, someone who's living in the present, shaped by the future, be aware of the spiritual return of the Lord Jesus. Be aware of the spiritual realities. Be aware of the joy that is yet to be and be aware of the justice that is yet to be. Verses 37 and verse 46. It's going to be a great banquet in the future. Spiritual blessings on a real concrete earth that we're going to be able to walk and enjoy the company of the Lord Jesus with. There's going to be real justice in the future as well. Be aware of that. Keep your lamp burning. Keep your spiritual antenna awake. Don't let the spiritual fuel of your heart dissipate. Keep your lamps burning. Keep your heart attuned to the joy and the justice that is yet to be. One of the books I read at college was a a book by a guy called Rodney Stark, Christian American, that's okay. But he's a Christian American historian, so he's really clever. And one of the things he wrestled with was how come, how come so many people, so many Christians in the Roman Empire, how come they just kept going in the face of such harsh opposition? I mean, these Christians, they were fed to the lions. This is written down in non-Christian history. These uh, Christians, they were persecuted. Their loved ones would be just dragged out and they could be raped, they could be butchered, they could be killed. So how come, not only did Christians keep going, but how come it spread? It spread like wildfire. And Rodney Stark, in loads of pages, I'll summarize it to two points. He said, here are the two things that kept Christians going. Number one, it was joy in the face of suffering. How do Christians keep going in the, the jaws of lions that were open and that were shut on them? How do they keep going when they lost their loved ones and when their possessions were taken away, when they didn't have a justice system? How did the Christians keep going? Because they had joy in the face of suffering. Not only did that help them to persevere, but they took on the burdens and needs of other people. When there was a, an epidemic in Rome, it was the Christians that went and helped non-Christians. They didn't run away from Rome, they ran to it. How did they do that? Because they had joy in the face of suffering. That's number one. Number two, the second thing that made Christians uh, persevere was that they were able to forgive in the face of persecution. There is lots of records from Josephus and other guys of Christians who were under persecution. Just terrible and tremendous amounts of persecution. There is not one account of Christians seeking retribution. There's no account in any history, and surely the non-Christians would record it if it was there, of Christians wanting to get vengeance, of Christians saying, they just killed one of our families, we're going to go and kill ten of those. There's not one account of that in any non-Christian or Christian history. Why? They didn't just have joy in the face of suffering. They were secure in the fact that a day was coming in the future as it shaped their present experience when there would be justice, even if they didn't experience it at the hands of Rome. That's two truths of joy in the future and justice in the future that kept their lamp burning, kept them aware to spiritual realities that the best was yet to be, that they could persevere in the face of suffering and not seek vengeance because the day was coming when they would receive justice. If you don't know this, then your life when you face injustice will be shaped by bitterness, 
You will have to face disappointment in this world. Christians face disappointment too. But it's disappointment and sadness and tears against the backdrop of the fact that the best is yet to be, that there will be joy, there will be justice to the max. It's the practices of the kingdom. It's the power of the kingdom, which is all future. No, it's not. It's future, but it's also present. It's the practices of the kingdom of generosity, of perseverance, of crossing social barriers. Finally, I want to ask how. How can we have this kingdom? How can we receive it? Two words, giving, girding. How can we receive this kingdom? Two words, giving and girding. The word giving is in the passage, verse 32. Notice what it does not say. We thought about this last week, verse 32, chapter 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. You don't give and then God gives. God, by his grace in Jesus, says you are chosen, you are called, you are adopted into my family. It's all of grace. It's all of God. And so Jesus can say, verse 32, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He just has for his glory. It's the first word, giving. Here's the second word, girding. It's an old-fashioned word that means basically to roll up your sleeves and put your kind of toga in your belt to get ready for work. That's what it means. When I go out to the garden, when I do some DIY, I have some pretty stagnant tracksuit bottoms that walk to me. I don't even have to put them on anymore. They're covered with gunk, but I'm getting ready to work. Look at verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress, he will gird himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will wait on them. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Do you know who the master is? It's him. It's the king. It's the Lord Jesus who's coming to serve as he walked the earth 2,000 years ago But here's the the tension. When Jesus returns, he will gird himself. For what purpose? To use all his omnipotent power and energy and resources for your and for my joy. That's what heaven will be. Here's what the kingdom of God is all about. I'm going to use all my resources, all my creativity. I'm going to demonstrate my love to you in a way that you've never seen before apart from the cross. And that's why heaven is going to be so great and glorious. Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, one of the greatest minds in all of history, in um, 1654, he had a night where God met with him. And at his death, as they unpicked the scene in one of his suit jackets, they found a note that Blaise Pascal had written and it described this encounter with God. He said, for two hours, I had such experience of the love and power and grace of God, so much honor, so much joy, that I never got over it. It changed his life. He was a great mind in all his studies, all his resources, all his thinking. It was this two hours, as God met with him, that changed his life forever. It gave him just a taste of the best that was yet to be. 
And here in this passage, we see the reality of the future shaping the present. God's promises coming into fruition. Right back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God made a promise to another man. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great family. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make your name great. His name was Abraham. Three chapters later in Genesis 15, Abraham's wrestling. And he's saying, God, how do I know you're going to do this? I mean, I get sense of it, but, but how do I know? Show me. And God says, okay. And he makes him fall into a deep sleep. How do I know you're going to give me all these great things? And in this sleep state, God says to Abraham, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take some animals. I want you to cut them in half, to cleave them. And I want you to make a pathway with half on one side, half on the other. And this is a practice from the ancient Near East where any big king wanted to make a deal with a little king, any oath that wanted to be made, you would get animal pieces, you would cut them in half, you would make a walkway, and both big king and little king would walk through the pieces. And it's a solemn oath saying, if we do not keep our deal, if we do not keep our covenant oath, may we become like these animal pieces. And Abraham thought, I'm sure God wants me to walk through the pieces. But as the dream went on, God appeared in a smoking fire pot, and God, and God alone, went through the pieces, because God made a covenant with himself. And because God made a covenant with himself, it was unbreakable, it was perfect, it was endurable. Friends, the gospel is this. Because the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was, verse 46, cut into pieces as he was ripped apart, as he was ripped asunder from his Father, because the Lord Jesus Christ was cut to pieces, so to speak, on the cross, that means you and I don't have to be. God, to Abraham, said, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to make this promise stand. Jesus on the cross is saying, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to bless you, and I'm going to be ripped apart for it so you don't have to be. That's the gospel. That's how Jesus can say in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How is that possible? Because he paid the price. Because he was ripped apart. He received ultimate eternal justice so that we don't have to because we all deserve to be on that cross. But Jesus is there in our place. And friends, how do you know that this kingdom of joy will be yours if you're a Christian? How do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ will gird himself for you to serve you in the future, to lay before you this great banquet fair of fine wine and drink? because he already has 2,000 years ago at the cross. His greatest work of rolling up his sleeves, of facing hell and all the consequences of our sin. And he did it for you and for me. And because he died, he's offering us free grace and a free eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, future joy, future hope. Friends, to the degree you know this, as is always the case, if we got this truth, then we would be able to face injustice, we would be able to face suffering, 
and it would make us people of generosity, people who cross social boundaries, people who persevere, people who endure. Verse 35 says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Maintain spiritual readiness, awakeness. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there's so much in this world that just wants us to settle down and wants us to say the best is now and that we can believe the lie that we can have our best life now and we don't want to believe that lie, so please help us by the power of your spirit and by his power alone to stay awake, to stay ready for action, to gird ourselves, to keep our lamps burning, Help us not to fall asleep and into danger, I pray. And we dare to ask that in the coming months and years, just like our friend who's become a Christian in the last few months, you would be pleased to show more of yourself to us so that we would know day by day the joy that Blaise Pascal experienced. So much joy, so much of a closeness in our walk with you that it would change us from the inside out, it would turn us upside down, And we would know more of the future and the present, but we would long for the future as well. Please help us, I do pray. Amen.